Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church Online. If you're tuning in either morning of Sunday, September 4th, or later on, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. My name is Dan. I'm a pastor of youth and young adults here at Ridge Church, and I'm excited to be with you. Today, we're wrapping up our series in the book of Leviticus that we've called Sanctus, as we look towards what it means that we are a people that's made holy by God. As we lean towards the start of a new year, as summer begins to wrap up, we've been doing a flyover of the book of Leviticus. We've been looking at all these different elements of the book. And if you're wondering how we managed to get through Leviticus so fast, or it feels like maybe there's been a number of themes that you've seen or a number of questions that you have, and it feels like we're flying through this very, very fast, that's a fair observation, you're right. I remember the first time I went to Disneyland, I didn't think I'd like it very much, um, but I ended up falling in love with the place. It was so much fun, it was amazing. And I remember this specific ride called Soaring the World. And here's some photos of it here. It used to be Soaring California, I'm told by my wife who went at an earlier time in her life than I did. And what this ride is, you can see here, you get on this kind of, um, technological thing, you hop on there, it lifts you up, there's this big kind of wraparound HD screen, and it flies you through all these different places in the world, and you get to go to the Swiss Alps and the Egyptian pyramids, you fly across the Eiffel Tower, and there's all these elements that they've added in to create this immersive experience, right? When you fly through the Alps, the snow comes down, when you go past the pyramids, dirt flies up, in your face. When you go past the Eiffel Tower, you can smell the fresh baguettes all over the place. It's this totally immersive experience that gives you a taste of what the world is like. But we know this is just a ride, right? This is not the same thing as someone packing a bag, backpacking around the world, truly seeing these places. The total ride, I looked it up, lasts for a, a whopping four minutes and 15 seconds. You get about 10 to 13 seconds in each location that the ride takes you on. It's not even close to the real thing. But the hope of what this ride does is to create a brief but beautiful experience. It, its desire, its goal as a ride, is to spark some kind of deeper reality that makes it feel real and immersive. And what we've been trying to do, what this series has been about, has been giving you a flyover to show you the beauty of the gospel that can be found in the book of Leviticus. This book that we so often avoid is actually filled with beauty and an invitation from God about what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. See, research for this series for me has been fascinating because when I first started looking at the passage I'm going to be preaching on today, the first thing I thought was, what am I supposed to say about Leviticus? It's a bunch of rules. It's super weird. I don't really need to understand what's going on. We have the New Testament now, don't we? But the more I leaned and pressed in, the more I can see the beauty of what God is doing in the story and the people of Israel. I remember when Jonathan and I sat down to discuss what was coming up on our preaching calendar and Jonathan told me pretty matter-of-factly that, that we'd be doing a series in the book of Leviticus. I remember thinking, are you sure that's a good idea? There's lots of amazing things happening in our church. There's so much excitement. There's so many things that we could talk about, so many things going on in the world. Is that, is that really where we're going to go? 
Um, Leviticus, as I heard one commentator put it, it can be lovingly referred to as sort of like a priestly tech manual, or what I'd even compare it to is like the owner's manual of my Honda Fit that sits in the glove box. I don't really open it up. I don't read it. I'm sure there's some important stuff in there, and maybe I'll open it up if I need it, but for the most part, it is not something I'm going to keep on my shelf. It is not something I'm going to look back to often. I'm not going to crack it open on a Sunday afternoon because I just really want to know how to change my oil. It's this, this reality, though, that Leviticus matters. The book of Leviticus matters, and not just to the Israelite people, but to you and me. Why? Because it's the collision of God and his people. It's the collision of what it looks like when the God of the universe draws near to a people. How can a holy God draw near to a sinful and broken people? What does it look like for God to live in our midst? What does it mean that people can have a relationship with the God who created them? What does freedom look like? If the Israelites, if we have been set free from bondage in Egypt, what does that mean for our lives. Because see, the owner's manual of my Honda Fit may not be what I sit down to read all the time, but when something isn't working quite right, or when I want to figure out kind of what the core and, and what the underneath and how to do certain things on my car, I need it. I, I remember one time I had a car and I got it and I was driving it for a couple months and stuff started to go wrong with it. And, and I opened up the glove box because that's where the owner's manual should be. And there was no owner's manual. There was no guide for me to understand how it had been created, what I was supposed to do, how to know what that noise was. See, what the book of Leviticus is, is it's pointing us to what it looks like for God to intersect with us, for God to step into our lives. In the first chunk, about the first half or the first two movements of the book that we've explored over the last number of weeks has looked at precisely that. Leviticus 1 to 7. We looked at the rituals and the sacrifices. What does it mean to be restored into relationship with God? That there is a blood penalty that sin has and that God has actually created a way through the sacrificial system for the Israelite people to be restored in relationship with God. How do we approach God's throne? How can a sinful people come near to God? Through thank you offerings, the grain offering, the fellowship offering that thanks God for who he is and what he's done, but also the offerings to say we're sorry, we confess our sin and we repent of it, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, these rituals, these practices so that people could know that they could come into relationship with God. And then we saw what Leviticus 8 to 10 was about, the priests. How do the representatives of God come into the presence of God and do the work, do the ministry of unifying God and people? How do people, as many have put it, stand in the gap between God and the people that he loves, but that also have sin, which his holiness would destroy? And we see what happens when that goes wrong, when Aaron's sons desecrate the temple, when they take it into their own hands, when they don't follow the commands, when they operate not out of what God has instructed them, but out of what feels good to them. We see how that can go wrong. And then Leviticus 11 to 15, we heard about last week. 
about how our purity, our cleanliness or our uncleanliness affects how we can approach God. Food, animals, bodily fluids, all these things that represent life and death and they make us clean or unclean. What's important to remember, as Jonathan noted last week, there is nothing sinful about being unclean. What is sinful and broken in the book of Leviticus is coming before God in that state. See, everything's symbolic. Everything holds a meaning in a culture, their culture that was saturated with spirituality and religion and thoughts about the gods. Everything had a meaning. And so God too spoke to that reality. And it all leads up to the central act. In fact, this central act that we're going to discuss this morning uh, or today, wherever you're listening from, is the central moment, the central act, not just in the book of Leviticus, but also in the movement of the entirety of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Day of Atonement. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 16. It's at the very core of the book of Leviticus and the the Torah as a whole. Because it's the one day a year, the one day a year where Aaron the high priest or whoever was the high priest at that time could enter in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the very place where God dwelled. Why? To atone, to make right the sins of of the people. Here's what it says in Leviticus 16, 6 to 10. Aaron is to offer the bull. This is God speaking. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls on the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. And so one goat goes in as a sin offering in the pattern that we read about a couple of weeks ago. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So we see this ritual, we'll see with this day of atonement, and there's two goats involved. And goat one is, is not unlike what many of the sacrifices would be. It's given as a sin offering. It's bloodshed on behalf of sin, a substitute for the sins of the people of Israel, which is taken directly into the Holy of Holies and poured out on behalf of the people onto the altar. It's as if the altar, the lid where the blood of that goat is poured out, the very place where the Israelites understood God's presence to be, that is where the blood is poured. The very presence of God on earth is the very place where the blood is shed. God himself provides a substitute. God himself provides that blood. But we see a second goat and it's called the scapegoat, which you've probably heard the word in modern culture. We use it all the time. See, this goat doesn't die. This goat isn't sacrificed or killed. Rather, it's sent away into the wilderness. As many commentators note, sort of like Israel's garbage dump. The garbage, the sin, the brokenness of Israel is placed on that goat and it is sent out into the wilderness where the sins of the nation are abandoned. Why does this matter? Because this is a picture of what we believe as Christians. This is a picture of what we believe Jesus came himself in his own sacrifice to do on our behalf. That he came to pay the penalty for our sin. We see on this side of the cross, on this side of Christ's resurrection, on this side of Christ's ascension, that we actually have the perfect and complete day of atonement for us. 
that Christ himself stepped in as both goats, the bloodshed, and he took the garbage out on the cross that we may be made right with God. So we don't need another sacrifice. We don't need another goat. We don't need a priest to kill something on our behalf. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the spotless lamb who willingly gave himself up on our behalf, who proclaimed from the cross as he gave his life, it is finished. And as his blood was shed for our forgiveness, as he was sent off and cast off and made to be sin for those, uh, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be called the children of God. That is what the gospel is. That is why these passages in Leviticus matters. And the book of Hebrews in your New Testament is all about this exact reality, how Jesus steps in as the true and better version of the sacrificial goat. Because that's what the Old Testament is. That's what all of these stories, that's what the law, the Torah, the prophets, all these things are pointing towards the fulfillment and the true and better version of themselves that is Jesus Christ. Each story, every so-called biblical hero that we look up to and want to take moral lessons from, it's all pointing to a better version of itself that is Jesus. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 1-4 says. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they offer year after year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all. We are purified once and for all by Jesus's blood would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to truly take away sins. See, this is why we need our whole Bibles. Some of us, we like this idea that we want to separate out and go, I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't like reading the Old Testament. I'm not looking at the Old Testament. That's all old stuff. We don't need it. It's not important. But, but here's the reality. You can't hold up one part of the word of God without the other. We need both parts of the Bible. Our Old Testament show us what God is like and what God is up to. The whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation points us to the story of God pursuing his people in love. That story culminates and is fulfilled in Jesus, but it's been going since Genesis 1.1. The God of Leviticus is not different from the God of the Gospels and Paul's letters. We cannot separate and pretend like they are different. We see different aspects and different pieces of the character of God, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The mission of God since page one has been that God could be with his people. And even in Leviticus, we see him working and bringing this about. But for the Hebrew people in the wilderness, post-Exodus, post-freedom into Egypt, as they are introduced into new ways of relating with God after their slavery and their burdens in Egypt, the reality is that they can be made right with God, freed from the anxiety of wondering, what does God think about me? Because see, again, they're in this culture where all sorts of ideas, all sorts of gods, all sorts of rituals and sacrifices, they're all around them, not just around themselves, but around the nations, whether it's Egypt or Canaan, Egypt where they come from, Canaan where they're going. There's all sorts of ideas. And Yahweh, he's different from the gods of the surrounding culture because he's clear in his desire 
for relationship with people. And that means he's clear in the pathway that people can experience that relationship. See, every other God in that religious structure, all those religious structures around the Israelites, they all wanted sacrifice. They all wanted worship. But, but here's the problem. You never know if it worked. Did I sacrifice enough? Did I do enough? Was, was the animal enough or do I need to sacrifice my child? Do I need to go to the temple and sleep with a temple prostitute? What do I need to do? Did the sacrifice work? Does God actually like me? Is he going to bless me? There's this anxiety and fear. Imagine wondering, did I sacrifice enough of my children for God to bless me and my family? The disconnect, the the moral dissonance of that makes no sense to us. And yet there's this anxiety for these people in this system that goes, I'm afraid of what God thinks of me. And I wonder how many of us operate in our lives in fear because we don't know what God thinks of us. When we sin, when we blow it, when we mess up, we start to wonder, is God mad at me? Have I messed up too many times? What if I did something wrong? What if I sinned without knowing it? Am I really saved? How do I know if I'm really saved? What if I have issues that I can't figure out? What if I have addictions that I can't seem to overcome? But what the God of the Bible says is that I have a clear path for you to be reunited in relationship with me. Romans 8, 15, love this verse. Here's what it says. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Into fear. You didn't receive a slavery, a a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That is not what God has for you, but you have received the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, that means that the anxiety can be removed because God has pursued us in love. We don't have to sit wondering what God thinks about us. We have seen in the life and work and sacrifice of Jesus exactly what God thinks of us, that we are worthy to be called his children by the blood of Christ. But then here's the question, and it's the same question the Israelites had to ask. If that anxiety can be gone, if we can be restored to relationship with God, if we can call God our Lord and know that he is with us, know that he is for us, know that he will never leave or forsake us, what does that mean for the rest of our lives? What does that mean for how we interact with our families? What does that mean for how we interact with our neighbors? What does that mean for our jobs, our sex lives? How do we interact with people who are different from us? How do we interact with people who believe differently than us? How do we interact with the everyday stuff? See, so much of the first part of Leviticus deals with this issue. What do we do inside the temple? What sacrifices do we make? How do the priests operate? What is clean and unclean? All these questions of what do we do inside the temple? But here's the thing that Leviticus also points to that we need to point to as well. God doesn't just care about what happens in the temple. He cares about what happens outside the temple. God is not just invested in what happens inside the temple in Leviticus. So too, God is not just interested in what you do, what you think, and what you claim your worldview to be when you attend Ridge Church on a Sunday or listen to a podcast. He is interested. He cares about what happens outside the temple, in our lives, in our day to day. Before we look at much of what the final movement, this kind of last few chapters of Leviticus is all about, um, what we need to do is address something that's really, really important as we sit on this side of Christ's completed work. 
See, the reality is we have to do the work of interpreting and understanding Old Testament law. Jonathan gave a great message last week about how that looks around food, how that looks around a number of different things. But there's a couple of realities that we have to be aware of. I think there's three ways in which people approach Old Testament law. Two are not so healthy, but we may have a propensity to. And the third is the most important and what we ought to do. And so here's what they are. The first one is copy and paste. If it says it in the Bible, then we need to do it. If it says in the Bible that this is what we are doing, then we have to follow that as the law. If it says in the Bible, do this, don't do this, wear something that's only this fabric, don't eat shellfish, don't eat bacon, all these kind of things, then we have to do it. It's a complete copy and paste of the rules. The only challenge with this is Jesus speaks directly to these kind of things. Jesus himself speaks to Old Testament laws, says that they have been fulfilled and that food is called clean. So there's at least some laws which Jesus speaks to and says they have been fulfilled. We are no longer bound by those things as law. But the second thing that we see, the second option, is that we see this idea where maybe we don't copy and paste, but we get to cherry pick. And see, I think for many of us, that's exactly what we want to do, isn't it? We look at Leviticus and we know the laws that feel good to us. Dump the ones about food, dump the ones about fabrics, dump all those ones. But let me pick up the ones I really like. Let me pick up the ones about people I don't like so I can judge others. Let me pick up this, that, or the other thing. But the reality is we don't get to cherry pick the Bible for our own purposes. We submit ourselves to God as his image bearers. We bear God's name and God's image. God is not created by us. Therefore, we submit and obey what he has called us to. So we must do the work of biblical exegesis the work of study, the work of prayer, the work of nuance that we might begin to understand what it looks like for us to obey what God has truly commanded. There is commands in Leviticus that are quite simple to carry across to what it means for us to be Christians today. What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to honor your father and mother? Those are clear, obvious New Testament principles, but there are some that are not so clear. And that requires deep, thoughtful, theological work that's been done in Christian history over generations and generations. And that is exactly the work that we need to do as well. Think of this in Leviticus 17. It's speaking about laws around blood. Here's what it says in 17, chapter 17 in verse 2. Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites say to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed the blood and must be cut off from their people. That seems intense, right? They, they killed an animal. I, I've helped on farms. I've helped slaughter and, and take care of animals so that people could eat food, so that my family and I could eat food. I didn't take it to a temple and show it to God, but, but here's what God is up to. See, the greatest issue when we look deeper, and this is the work of biblical exegesis, is looking at historical and cultural context, is understanding that in this passage, what, what Yahweh is speaking to is that out in the wilderness, there's many people sacrificing animals to gods that aren't Yahweh. 
And so what the Israelites would do is they would take animals, they would take them out of the camp, away from the temple, away from God, and they would sacrifice them there to other deities. They would sacrifice them there to other spiritualities. With this idea, we might as well cover our bases, right? Because we've got the temple thing going, we've got the priests, I think we've got it figured out, but let's just make sure, because there's some spiritual power. We saw Egypt, we saw Canaan, we've seen these things. Let's just cover our bases and make these sacrifices. But Yahweh is saying, no, that's not what you can do. Have no other gods before me. The issue was not about animals. The issue was a lack of trust and honor for God's name. See, the issue God is after is the core of our hearts. The motives of our hearts is the primary issue that God is seeking to address. See, if we make the law about do this, don't do this, we miss out on what God is actually doing, drawing us to himself inviting us to follow him, inviting us to know that he has us, he cares for us, and he loves us. And so through the last 10 chapters of Leviticus, we see God give what many scholars, many commentators has described as a sort of holiness code for the people of Israel. A section that's given to teach not just on what's in the temple, but how we as followers of Yahweh operate outside the temple, whether that's Israelites, or potentially, as we carry over with strong theology and biblical exegesis, how we as Christians live today. So we're going to hop into that, but a reminder, this is the soaring over the world Disneyland ride version of the book of Leviticus. People have dedicated their lives to studying and understanding these chapters that we're going to fly over in the next 15 or so minutes. Um, I highly recommend, if you're interested in digging a little bit deeper on this, The Bible Project has a um, podcast series on the scroll of Leviticus. It's nine episodes long that walks through all of these things in, in a little bit more detail than we will be able to today. It's very helpful. Highly, highly recommend you check out The Bible Project's podcast on Leviticus. But here's what we find as we read about the holiness code for the Israelite people. In chapters 18 to 20, God begins with what is most personal to us and what's often called the moral laws. See, it's here where God speaks to the things that we hold most dear. These areas of life that we tend to be most likely to hold back or keep private, these are our things. This is our stuff. This is what we think about when we sit up in bed at night. These are the things we have arguments about with our friends and family. These are the things we ponder in our minds all the time. And they can be categorized essentially in the three main areas. And the first is that of sexual morality, sexual integrity. Yahweh calls his people to have integrity in a sexual way. And this is the one we get most uncomfortable with, right? Here's dozens of rules, incredibly harsh sounding language to our modern ears, and it all surrounds something that we, in 2022, in our culture, in our reality, that we view as incredibly private, as incredibly personal, as incredibly deep and connected to who we are. We live in a culture and a time where your sexuality, what you do with your body, is everything. It's all about who's having sex with who and who gets to have sex with who and how do we navigate all those things. And a question I've heard asked by a number of people in my time in youth ministry, but in, genu in general, just living life in the culture we do when I talk to my friends who don't follow Jesus is, why does God care so much about who I sleep with? It's private. It's my thing. It's what I'm doing. It's not hurting anyone. And, and in our sex-obsessed culture, that kind of seems like a legitimate question, doesn't it? 
And as we've seen in Leviticus, though, God is not just winging it. God is not just saying rules that he thinks sound good. He's not being petty. He's not trying to press in and tell people they have no privacy. He's actually pushing against the practices of the surrounding nations where sex with temple prostitutes was a way to gain favor with the gods. See, as Jonathan noted last week, sex in that culture, sex in that religious structure was this idea, this thing to be used for pleasure and for favor with the gods. People's bodies had no dignity. If you were a man with power, then you could do what you want with whoever you wanted, whenever you wanted. Everyone else existed to serve you. And while we may look at these laws, when we read Leviticus and go, these are so outdated, these are so ridiculous, why on earth are these here? What God is actually getting at is that in a culture where a woman or a slave or a servant's body was treated as nothing more than as an object for the pleasure of people in power, God says, no. No, it's not an object to be taken in power or control. That every person, no matter who they are, rich or poor, powerful or not powerful, man or woman, everyone's body, everyone's person, everyone's self has deep dignity. That in a culture where these people's bodies were used as nothing more than something to be used and abused for personal pleasure, God says our bodies have immense value and dignity because he has created them. Because he has made them in his image. Therefore, we cannot treat them as if what we do with our bodies will not impact our souls. And we know that, right? What we do with our bodies will impact our souls. The greatest pain, the greatest hurt, the greatest heartbreak for Christians and non-Christians alike tends to be around sexual sin. Whether it's affairs or lust and pornography or whatever it may be, sexual sin has a deep and lasting impact on us that other types of struggles don't seem to. And this is not the sermon to get into all of that, but what I do want to say is this. Every single person, regardless of who they are attracted to, regardless of what they navigate in their lives, regardless of how they struggle through the body that God has created them in, regardless of all of those things, they are loved and cared for by the God of the universe. They are created in his image and their bodies have value and dignity because of that. But in this broken world, we are all sexually broken. And whatever that may play out like for you, whatever struggles, whatever sins, whatever shame you may carry around sex and sexuality, what we need to know is this, that our bodies, our souls, and our minds have been created by God. And sex is a good and beautiful gift from God, but it is not our main identity. It is not who we are. Our sex and our sexuality is not the core of what it means to be a human. And so God speaks to these things saying our bodies have immense dignity, but they do not define us. We are not just a body. We are a soul and a body. God also moves into all these other laws, primarily about relationships and about justice. If you read through, you see many things you will have heard in your Sunday school classrooms growing up that are easy to carry over for us as Christians. Honor your father and mother, as in how you interact with your family matters. We honor and love those who we partake in family life with. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't 
lie. How we engage with relationship with all people matters. There's instructions about caring for the poor, not harvesting everything so that those who don't have as much are still able to come through the fields and get what they need in order to survive. It's a call to generosity. It says, do not gossip or slander. There's one we like to cherry pick. My friends, our call as Christians, a command we have from God is to not gossip. What do you talk about when somebody's not in the room? We have a call from God to have relational integrity. All these things are outside of the temple. And then we see this famous verse. Jonathan already spoke to it earlier in this series. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. This core piece that Jesus himself actually borrowed this line from which is wild. We consider, we look at these commands. We say, they're so cringy. They're so awkward. I don't want to go there. I don't want to think about that. I don't, I don't like that part of the Bible. I don't like that part of Christianity. It makes us uncomfortable. But from this very passage, Jesus draws out the principle. Here's what it tells us in Mark 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing Jesus had given a good answer. He asked Jesus, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. And taking from Leviticus, thinking of the Levitical law that God gives, the core, the motives of the heart, Jesus says this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love God, love people. And then into chapter 21 and 22, we see more instructions given for the priests, given specifically to not just how they operate inside the temple, but how they operate outside of it as well, how they are called to serve in a specific role with a specific purpose to bridge the gap between Yahweh and his people. Hebrews 10, again, continues this theme. It says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, but they can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for the sins forever, has sat down at the right hand of God. It's talking about Jesus. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, one sacrifice, he is perfected forever, those who are sanctified. So we don't need priests anymore. Not in a Levitical sense. We, we don't need people to go before us. I, as a pastor, love to serve and care and, and pray for and do all the things that God has asked me to do, but I am not the barrier between you and God. You can approach God's throne as his beloved child. But at the same time, as Jonathan talked to in his message on the priest, we are, as Peter puts it, like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, like a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. Each one of us now holds the role of priest to show others what Jesus is like. We just had our first youth leaders meeting as we prepare for our fall launch. And in that meeting, we went over not only our statement of faith and all these different kinds of things, we went over what it means to be a leader. We talked about what it means to consecrate yourself, to set yourself apart, to hold yourself, to be above reproach in order not to make God love you more, that's impossible, but in order to more rightfully show people what Jesus is like. See, here's the thing you need to know. Calling requires consecration. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says that I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Do you catch that? 
It's not about making God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you more. We've already seen in the cross that Jesus has given everything that we could be restored in relationship to God. But the question is, will we live lives worthy of the calling God has placed on our lives? There is no connection between your personal holiness and Jesus' power to save you. There's none at all. But there is a connection between your holiness and your ability to step into the works that God has prepared for you. And so the invitation is to set yourself apart, to make oneself holy, to not to make God love you more, but to step into what he has for you. That there is things that you are called to do, that God has set out for you to do, but that will require you to lay down your sins, to lay down your shame, to lay down your addictions, to give up things that the world says are absolutely necessary that you might say, I am more interested in serving God than, than getting what I want for myself. I am more interested in what God has for my life than the world has on offer. I may be in the world and I will live here and I will serve and love, but I am set apart for what God has called me to do. And then we see a breakdown of the many festivals and these calendar dates. And this is where it gets confusing and weird. And oftentimes we've seen Christians or others take these kind of things and be like, this is what it means. And it's about the apocalypse. And this is, this is this. But really what this is all about is around the rhythms that God placed in the people that they would remember him, all centered around this weekly rhythm of Sabbath. Here's what it says, Leviticus 23, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation or a holy gathering. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And then it goes through and it talks about these festivals. The festival of Passover, the festival of unleavened bread, where the, the people remembered the Passover, how they were taken out of Egypt. They remembered the Exodus. The festival of first fruits and the festival of weeks where God's provision is celebrated. God has given us food for another year and so we celebrate. The festival of trumpets where they proclaim that God loved the people and would do something great among them. The day of atonement, which we already spoke to, the central act of the sins of Israel being atoned for. The festival of booths or shelters, where they remembered the shelters that, that the Israelite people had when they lived in the wilderness on their way out of Egypt. See, we see all these things. We see all these festivals as pointers to remember what God has done. And then as it carries on, you see in chapter 24, there's these instructions about the oil and the bread and the lamps and how everything ought to work in the temple. It seems to go kind of back into the temple. Here's what you do each day. Here's where you light it. Here's what you do in this moment, in that moment. Here's the number of things. But then we also see in chapter 25, a discussion of the year of Jubilee that we won't get into much now, but that over the course of many years, we see the land itself is given Sabbath rest where things are restored, where things are brought right. And the point of all this to kind of collapse it down as much as we can, the point of these festivals, the point of this practice in the temple, the point of the year of Jubilee, the point of weekly Sabbath rest, all draws us to this, that our time is not our own. That if we have been called and set apart by God, that we actually exist in the calendar of God. And we may not celebrate these festivals anymore. We may not live according to that calendar, but this is how God was setting up everything in Israel to help them remember God. 
how they eat, how they spend our time, in the years, in the weeks, in the months, and in the moments. Every aspect of time built around this rhythm of Sabbath keeping, a weekly rhythm to rest, remember, repeat. Rest, remember, repeat. That is what God is inviting the people to do. That's more than just sitting at home, getting takeout and watching Netflix. That's so much deeper than a day off. It's saying, what does it mean to remember what God has done in our midst as a community and for us as individuals? How do our calendars reflect that? Here's the point from theologian Tim Mackey. He says this, none of us have a neutral calendar. None of us have a neutral calendar. Our calendars are structured by two things, our values and a story. How we structure our time forms our values and how we see the world. Here's my question for you. What does your calendar say about what matters to you? If you open up your phone, if you open up your fridge calendar, wherever it might be, what does your calendar say about what matters to you? What is the story that your calendar tells about those things that are most important to you? Maybe it's work, maybe it's sports, maybe it's your own personal comfort and free time, maybe it's getting another vacation in. What does our calendar say about us? How do we enter into that same rhythm, not as a law, but as a gift, to be invited into the rhythm that God has created for us? And then as we do all through Leviticus, we find a very weird story in chapter 24 as we continue this flyover. It says this, Leviticus 24.10. Now an Israelite woman's son whose father was an Egyptian went out among the people of Israel. The Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. So two people, they get in a fight. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of Yahweh and he cursed it. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of Dibri and the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody till the Lord should be clear what they should do. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring him out of the camp, the one who cursed, and let him who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him. Speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses God shall bear this sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as in those who are not part of the people of God, and also the native, those who have grown up in the culture of Israel. When they blaspheme the name of God, they shall be put to death. What? That's intense. That seems like a little much for a swear word. That seems like a little bit much for, oops, I cussed when I was in the middle of a fight. I stubbed my toe but God has not struck me dead when I said something I shouldn't have under my breath. Well, here's how one commentator explains what this issue was and how God was actually dealing with the reality. Here's what it says. If the priest's special duty was to care for the holiness of the tabernacle, the responsibility of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, was to preserve the holiness of Yahweh's name. And there are a number of ways Israel could defile God's name taking something that belongs uniquely to Yahweh and treating it like that they could do anything they wanted with it, whether that's land, whether that's animals. Defiling Yahweh's name, it might look like child sacrifice, invoking Yahweh's name for a false promise, or taking Yahweh's name and presence lightly. The name of Yahweh is holy. It's a sacred object that the people of Israel carry together. They bear the name, they bear the image of God. What the name of Yahweh is to your average Israelite is what the tabernacle and temple is to the priest. 
dishonoring Yahweh's name as an Israelite is akin to the sin of Nadab and Abihu, those were the priests, Aaron's sons, when they inappropriately entered Yahweh's holy space and profaned it. Do you see that? God's not being emotionally unstable. God is not a killer on the loose who just flies off the handle when he gets offended. It's a heartbreakingly serious communication of what happens when we push against the nature in which we've been created. That each one of us, believer or unbeliever, sojourner or native Israelite, bears the name and image of God, which means we have an invitation to bear that name. Which means we have an invitation to represent that name. And it's an odd story and it leans into this discussion of laws around justice. In Leviticus 24, 17, this is the one many of us will already know, we've heard before. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person, it shall be given back to him. Now again, in our Western culture, in our cultural mindset, the way that we view things, we go, that's so harsh. That's so intense. That's so ancient. How could God be so ancient? That's not like Jesus. But what we need to see is that this punishment This reality, this law, the way in which God is setting up justice is to say that justice doesn't get to be made up on the spot. Justice cannot be arbitrary. Justice cannot be whatever we feel like because then we get into an upcycle of revenge. And you know what that's like, right? Someone hurts us, we hurt them a little worse. They hurt us a little worse, we hurt them a little worse. And on and on it goes. The upcycle of revenge and what God is saying in this passage is that there is a limit to what justice looks like. Justice must match the crime. It can't be vague or arbitrary. But if you still think this kind of justice seems over the top, look at how Jesus ups the ante on this teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, he says this. You have heard it said, speaking to Hebrew people, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, quoting Leviticus. But I tell you, Jesus says, do not even resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus ups the ante. He calls us further. He calls us deeper to what? to trust that God brings about justice, to trust that God will bring about what needs to happen, to operate from a position that we in and of ourselves cannot fully bring about justice. We cannot fully bring about and make all things right. We are not God. To turn our cheek, to serve the craziness and the radicalness of Jesus's teaching of enemy love found in that passage to bless those who curse us. Why? Why is Jesus upping the ante this way? Because that's what holiness is actually about. That's what holiness actually looks like. It's not about being better than other people. It's not about sitting in a culture like Canada, sitting in a city like Maple Ridge, looking around and going, how godless, how disgusting all these people around me are. Look at how they've messed up sex. Look at how they've messed up this. Look at how they've messed up that. That is not what holiness is about. Holiness is about embodying what we were created to be. 
embodying how God has created us and how God has called us to become like Jesus, that we might bless everyone we come across, not just our friends, but our enemies. God promises to bless all nations through Abraham and his family, and the holiness of God's people is meant to be the vehicle through which that occurs. A new way to live, a better way, a deeper way, one that transforms every element of our life from the ground up, that brings about joy and goodness and hope that Jesus would be shown to a watching world. So here's the question. Does your holiness make people feel judged or does it make them feel loved? Does your holiness invite people to see the beauty of Jesus or does it make people feel filled and covered in shame? Does your pursuit of holiness help you to see the work of what God is doing in someone's life? To look at someone broken and messy as they may be and see that that is the place where God might be working in them? Or does it cause you to look down on others? To think you're better, more righteous, more holy because you're following rules that they aren't? What is the fruit of your holiness? What does your holiness look like? What is the purpose of it? What is the fruit of your holiness? And so we see the book of Leviticus closes. And it closes its final chapters with a number of promises of blessings and cursings. If you do this, things will go well for you. If you do this, there will be consequences. There are blessings for obedience and there are punishments for disobedience. Will the Israelites obey? Will they experience the Sabbath rest that God has offered them? Will they experience the way of life that is deeper and truer and more beautiful than any other? Or will they go their own way and experience a promised exile? These laws of morality, these invitations to holiness are not just about rules and do this or don't do this. Here's how Stanley Hauerhaus describes this. Morality cannot be seen as an isolated act. It involves fundamental options about the nature and significance of life itself. Or more plainly put, our choices reveal our loyalty. How we operate, how we live, shows what we actually believe. You might have all your theology, all your worldview, all the ideas in your mind sorted about Jesus, but the question is, how does that cause you to live? You might know what to do inside the temple, but how do you live outside the temple? And if you keep reading the Old Testament, you know that it's a long and heartbreaking story of people abandoning God and coming back to Him, failing to keep their covenant, falling into all sorts of idol worship, spiritual unhealth, and so much that seems so dark and so heavy. And yet, because they are God's chosen people, they actually, the people of Israel, bear a greater responsibility to keep their covenant with Him. If not, the blessing promises of God invert into curses. And that, in Leviticus, described as what the Israelites eventually would go into, which was an exile, where they're sent out of the land that God had promised them, where they are taken over. We see the story of Israel as one of pain, where they're conquered, where they're exiled, where they're sent out to Babylon. And just like the Israelites, we feel this tension and desperation, don't we? We feel like we can't quite live up to the law. We feel like we can't quite do it. We feel like even if we know what we ought to do, we can't seem to wrap our minds around it. Even when we want to be holy, even when we want to just appear holy, we know what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. We read the words of Jesus about lust or about anger 
or about what it looks like to sin. And we go, man, who can be saved? Just like the disciples did. We look at all these things and we say, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do it? We can't be holy enough. We can't figure out how to do this on our own in the real everyday stuff of life. We might be doing it right in the temple, but our families feel like a mess. Our work life feels like a mess. Our addictions are breaking us down. But even in Leviticus, this book that makes our heads hurt with confusion, that causes us all sorts of questions about why God is like that and why God is doing those things, even there, we find this beautiful promise towards the end. Here's what it says, Leviticus 26, 40, as we close. But when they confess their iniquity, God says, and the iniquity of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness that they practiced against me and how they acted with hostility towards me and I acted with hostility towards them and brought them into the land of their enemies, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and when they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. The land abandoned by them will make up for its Sabbaths by lying desolate without the people while they make amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinance and abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, listen to this promise, while they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject or despise them so as to destroy them and break my covenant with them, since I am the Lord their God. For their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. God says that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad we have messed up, that he is faithful, that he is committed to the covenant that we might break. And all of this is a promise. All of this is a pointer. All of this is a compass that points us directly to Jesus, this hope that we can hold on to. In the darkest of times, in a culture where we feel totally out of place, when we blow it, when we seek to be holy and can't handle it, all these things, they find their shape and their fulfillment in Jesus, the one who shows us that God loves us so much, so deeply, and is so utterly committed to being with his people that even if we cannot fulfill the requirements of the law, which we can't, he will do it. That Christ himself gives us our ultimate day of atonement. That Christ himself steps in as both goats. The one who would be sacrificed and have his blood shed. The one who would bear the weight of the garbage of our sin and be sent out into the wilderness. Jesus went out into the wilderness, battled the enemy and came back victorious. That is who we follow. That is who we are invited to know. And so I want to close with these words from Romans that talk about what it means that God himself has become our atonement. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, for a holy person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified with his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we have been reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we may rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. My friends, we have our atonement. The sacrifice has been given. Christ has proclaimed that it is finished over your life. What you do in the temple, what you do out of the temple cannot separate you from God, but the invitation of God is this. To experience that love, to experience that grace, and to follow Him. To be changed and transformed. To be made holy. To be set apart, not to make others feel terrible, not to make others feel shame, but rather to introduce those around us, our families, our friends, our neighbors, even our enemies, to love and grace and the mercy of Jesus. That is our call and that is our invitation. That is what the book of Leviticus is all about. So as we close out this series, let's pray together and invite God to move in that very way. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you came to be our atonement, to step in, to shed your blood, to allow yourself to bear the weight of our sin, that we might be made right with you. And so God, we now sit on the other side of that reality. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would make us holy consecrate us to what you have called us to, show us what you've called us to, humble our hearts that we might know and obey and follow you. Jesus, there's so much in the book of Leviticus that feels confusing. There's so much that pushes against the things that we have in our lives that we don't want to give up. There's so much that we don't understand, but what we do know, Lord God, is that you love us, is that you love people, and that your mission from Genesis 1 to right now has been the redemption of the people that you love. That that is your mission, that is your goal out of love for us. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you love us, that you gave yourself for us and that you have invited us to experience holiness that can only come from the work of your spirit in our lives. So Lord, we thank you for the book of Leviticus and what you teach us through it. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us where to go, how to live, that we might honor you and declare your name wherever it is we go. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.